Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 19th episode of the Writ Podcast. I'll be joined shortly by Sabrina and Angie to hear about the latest out of Queen's Park in Ontario, as well as Curtis Brown to break down the political situation in Manitoba as the province gets a new premier. But first, let's dive into some of the federal fundraising numbers that were published earlier this week. So in the period that covers July to September, and so the election campaign, the Conservatives raised the most at $9.8 million, with the Liberals in second with $7.6 million. While that's still a big number for the Conservatives, it's actually less than they raised in the third quarters of 2015 and 2019, which were also election quarters. The party raised over $10 million in those quarters, the first when Stephen Harper was on track for defeat, and the second when Andrew Scheer came up short. The Liberals uh, trailed in second, but they actually set a new record for their best quarter ever. In both the 2015 and 2019 election quarters, the Liberals raised $7.3 million, which had been the record before uh, this year. So their fundraising game was pretty good, considering they took less of the vote in this campaign than they did in both 2019 and, of course, 2015. The NDP raised $4 million, which is their best performance outside of the two quarters back in 2015 when the NDP was actually leading in the polls. So definitely a strong sign for the NDP that they've overcome some of the fundraising difficulties that they had prior to this year. The Greens raised $1.3 million, which is less than they did in both 2015 and 2019, while the Bloc Québécois set a new record, raising $1.2 million. That's more than double what they raised back in 2015 or 2019. The People's Party doesn't need to report quarterly, but they will have to start reporting quarterly going forward after getting more than 2% of the vote nationwide. So it'll be interesting to have some regular data on the PPC's fundraising. As before, we only got a glimpse of their fundraising once every year. We should get some PPC data for the fourth quarter of 2021. One of the things I'd like keeping an eye on with the fundraising returns are the past leadership candidates that are still raising money to pay off their debts. Aaron O'Toole, he raised $89,000 in the third quarter. Peter McKay raised $56,000, and Annamie Paul raised $600. Not sure what the state of each of these candidates' debt is, uh, but we should get a look at that early next year when contestants need to report on where things stand. Not seeing Kevin O'Leary's name on the list makes me wonder whether his debts have finally been paid off. All right, well, the countdown to the next election in Ontario keeps going and we're now 209 days away from the vote so sabrina and angie is back to give us an update on all the latest in ontario politics sabrina writes the queen's park observer newsletter which is something you'll definitely want to subscribe to as we approach the june 2nd election so sabrina what's the latest from queen's park hey eric happy mini budget week in ontario so there's roughly six months to go until the general election campaign and this week the ford government is setting the stage for what their narrative will be with its fiscal update otherwise known as the fall economic statement. And it's a big pivot for the party. One reporter called it a bizarro world when the traditionally business-friendly progressive conservative party is up making announcements alongside top union brass. But that's exactly how the PCs are positioning themselves these days, as pro-worker. We've seen the government do a 180 and decide to hike the minimum wage to $15, though experts say it's not enough to make a living basically anywhere in the province. And they're also bringing in some other shiny policy planks, such as the right to disconnect for workers, which sounds good, but is actually pretty tricky to enforce. The idea here, at least according to conservative insiders that I've spoken with, is that they think they can pick up support from so-called blue-collar workers that may not have voted for them in the past. It's also going to put the NDP in a bit of a tricky spot, politically speaking. 
New Democrats are traditionally union friendly, and though they say now that $15 isn't enough for a base wage, if they vote against the bill that raises it, the PCs will have a field day and paint the NDP as saying one thing and doing another. And that's a message that we've already seen from the PCs in some of their pre-campaign election ads. There's a few other pre-campaign themes that are becoming clear these days. The progressive conservatives have been pumping themselves up as the party of yes, the party that builds stuff. And big highway spending is clearly the way this government sees itself getting reelected in 2022. That includes building the controversial Bradford Bypass and Highway 413, which opposition parties have pledged to kill. I should add here that there's not a whole lot of details in this fall economic statement about how much it's going to cost to build these highways, but the line from the government is that they wanted to signal their intent, at least, to build them. What else is missing from this document are the tax cuts. In 2018, the government promised a tax break for middle-income earners and to cut the cost of gas by 10 cents a liter. That's nowhere to be seen in this document, and the government is likely now saving that for the spring budget, which will be released just before the writ drops next year. For now, Ontarians are getting tax credits, and that includes for seniors and staycations. So while we're starting to see the campaign take shape, the Ford government still has a lot to do to fulfill their mandate, and not a whole lot of time left before the vote next June. Okay, thanks again to Sabrina and Angie, and we'll hear from her again next month. Now, I want to turn to another province that has a new premier. This past Saturday, the Manitoba Progressive Conservatives chose Heather Stephenson as their new leader, and so she was sworn in as premier on Tuesday, replacing Brian Pallister, who had stepped down earlier this summer, and Kevin Gertson, who was in the role in the interim. Stephenson won with just 51% of the vote, beating former federal conservative cabinet minister Shelley Glover. But Glover has disputed the results, which means things could still get messy. To break it all down for us today, I'm joined by Curtis Brown. He's principal at Probe Research, a polling firm based in Winnipeg. Curtis, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind. This uh, leadership race didn't take very long, and uh, it's been no. a, a little bit of a, of, a, of a mess over the last week or so. Um, but why don't we start way at the beginning? First of all, Brian Pallister resigned earlier this summer. Uh, he, you know, he was only a couple years into a second term. Uh, he's only been premier for about five years. What was behind him deciding to step down? Well, I mean, primarily it was how he managed COVID and also just how he managed his government. And those two things were very, I think, closely intertwined. We saw over the court, you know, he, he won a very big re-election victory uh, two years ago. And, uh, and after that, uh, when COVID hit, um, he, he never had been very, you know, personally popular with Manitobans, like his popularity in our polling had always shown that it was behind that of the party. It wasn't necessarily because of him. Um, but once COVID hit, I mean, Manitoba was relatively, you know, didn't really have much of a first wave, but then the second and third wave were, were, were quite brutal. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, there, there were a lot of changes that were made to the healthcare system just before COVID. Uh, and, and there's the senses that that may have um, exacerbated some of the, you know, some of the issues with it. There were issues with, you know, per, you know, cases in personal care homes, all kinds of things. And just over time, we just, we, we saw his personal popularity was really, really starting to drop. And that was having a real drag on the party's um, support. And then things really kind of came to a head in the summer 
um, there was a, there were some protests at the legislature in Canada Day, and some protesters took down um, a statue of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth, and uh, and you know it was quite a quite a big deal. And, and when he commented on it, um, his comments were seen as being very insensitive. Uh, and uh, and then he ended up having one of his cabinet ministers, who was responsible for Indigenous relations, resigned. Uh, and then it was sort of over the summer, there was kind of this um, just this sort of sense that uh, you know that people were sort of wondering well is he going to step down what's going to happen is he going to be forced and then all of a sudden about mid-august he came out and said uh i've decided to step down and uh, have a have a new premier a new new leader of the pc party replace me so things really kind of went yeah like like over the course of the pandemic because of mainly the pandemic and then a few other issues as well um really kind of just contributed to hit a real erosion of popularity both just broadly with the public uh and then i think a lot of people even within his own party were quite anxious to to see him go and have a new leader come in and maybe try to give the progressive conservatives a bit of a, a you know a bit of a, a rebrand or a refresh if you will well they didn't take much time to have a leadership race i guess it is a different context when you're the government right you don't want necessarily to have uh, someone uh, in the premier's chair for uh, you know an interim period that is many many months not when you're in the opposition but still this race did not last very long and in the end there was only two candidates there was uh, Heather Stevenson, who uh, ended up winning, and Shelley Glover, who was a former ca uh, conservative cabinet minister. Um, how did that all play out? Why was there just those two candidates? Did the PCs try to make sure there wasn't going to be a big field and that it could be resolved pretty quickly? I think one would certainly draw that conclusion. I think one would draw the conclusion that the way the leadership race was structured was definitely by design um, as a way of discouraging a number of people to get in. There was a, there was a very high threshold for the amount of money that candidates had to put up. Uh, they also had to sign up um, a number of new, you know, number of new members by I think the middle of September. And so, um, so because of that, I mean, there, there were some candidates right out of the gate who, who, Took a look at those uh, conditions, and also the fact that yeah, they had to, um, they had to be in right away, and, and the leadership was going to be decided by the end of October. Um, they looked at that and said that they're not going to be able to make uh, make those deadlines. So that kind of drove um, some people out uh, in the first place. And then the other thing was even before the rules were announced, Heather Stephenson made an announcement. It was right at the end of August. Uh, so very not not long after uh, Brian Pallister made the announcement to step down, she made this kind of I would almost describe it as a shock and awe um, kind of show of force in terms of her leadership launch. She came out and she said, "I'm running. I've been asked to run," uh, and she had uh, two thirds of the uh, of the the progressive, I think more than two thirds of the uh, progressive conservative caucus behind her, kind of every sort of faction within the party, rural, urban, uh, you, you know, cabinet ministers, backbench MLAs, you name it. Um, so, you know, with that, I mean, all of a sudden she'd sewed up, sewed up the uh, endorsement of, of, you know, all of the, you know, the very, very, very large number of the, of the caucus. Um, it, that really, I think, cut off a lot of potential for, um, for any, you know, other people who may have been considering it. Uh, and there were a few others who were considering it pretty, uh, pretty closely. Um, you know, sort of looked at that and said, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to get the support because basically Heather Stephenson has the entire caucus sewed up. Uh, and then when you add in, you know, after that, there was the, 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 uh, the, the requirements, you know, the announcement about the other things about, you know, the amount of new members that had to be uh, signed up and the, um, and the amount of money uh, that really kind of, that, that really discouraged a lot of people. So but when you look at the, you know, you have those, you have Heather Stephenson, as you mentioned, she had the support from uh, pretty much all of the caucus. Um, you had Shelley Glover who comes in. She had, as far as I can tell, no endorsements from uh, caucus. Um, and yet it was such a close, close race. So what does that say about like what the Manitoba PC membership looks like when 
you know, just 51% of the members chose the establishment candidate who's, you know, she's been an MLA for a long, long time. And half of them chose Shelley Glover, who it seems no one within the party apparatus really wanted to see as leader. Yeah, well, I mean, it speaks to just, you know, yeah, that there is kind of this major tension and this major divide. And I think this exists to some degree in, in all conservative parties in Canada. There is this kind of thing between kind of the inside and, you know, the inside and the outside and also the, you know, more urban moderate wing of the party and the more populist grassroots. Um, and, and I mean, yeah, I mean, for all of Heather Stephenson's advantages, and there were plenty, I mean, there, you know, in terms of money, organization, uh, endorsements, you name it, the, the fact that, yeah, that she only got 51% of the, of the support in the end, and, and, you know, and there were some questions about how the leadership race was won, and, you know, we can get into that, but, but the fact that, yeah, that she, she won by such a narrow margin is, is actually quite shocking. I, the, the other thing, though, I think to keep in mind, so, I mean, the one thing I guess I didn't mention about people, um, you know, as far as that whole process leading up to uh, the sign-up. So the, the candidates had to enter the race by the middle of September. Uh, and the former treasurer of the party, uh, the, the Progressive Conservative Party, he'd never been elected to office, uh, a man named Ken Lee, uh, announced that he was running. And he was kind of running on an explicit platform of, um, uh, you know, and, you know, like weakening vaccination mandates, anti-masking, that kind of stuff. He was definitely, I think, making a play to uh, some of, you know, some of those folks. Uh, and, and there were apparently, I mean, even though his, his uh, candidacy ended up being disqualified by the party, that was the other thing, the party kind of got the final say in terms of who got to be a candidate. Um, he did apparently sign up a number of people. And I think you know, it would seem that some of those people, there were a significant number of people who were signing up to join the Progressive Conservative Party just to support someone who would lessen some of the public health orders and, and kind of were kind of in that vein of, you know, the, the People's Party populist um, trend that kind of that we've been seeing. Uh, and, and Shelley Glover, you know, I think did, you know, without kind of going full anti-vax. Um, did kind of make some appeals to to some of those folks. So, you know, by some of her comments that she made about, uh, you know, not not requiring testing for people who work in healthcare facilities and, and things like that were kind of definitely nods in that direction that, you know, may have certainly gotten her some of, uh, some of the support among people who maybe, you know, maybe they vote conservative sometimes, but they weren't necessarily dyed in the wool party members, but they're people who are definitely animated by this issue and quite motivated to, to come out and support someone who aligns more with their views. So the results were very, very close. It was just about three or 400 votes that separated Stephenson from Glover. And Glover has said that on uh, the night before the ballots were counted, she knew the amount of numbers of votes that were going to be counted. And based on that initial number, when she heard how many she had gotten, that meant that she had gotten a majority and so she was going to win. And is you know taking uh, PCs more or less to court to try to overturn the results. Stephenson has been sworn in as premier, so she would have to be I guess, unsworn in. I'm not sure how that all works. But, you know, she's not really backed down. She was on Power and Politics yesterday. She was still saying that she should have been the one who was uh, sworn in. This seems like a bit of a problem, <laughs> not only like for in terms of Manitoba politics, but a split within the PC party. Yeah, I, I don't know how it, it, it certainly is a potential issue for sure. I mean, we, we've been seeing in our polling for the last few months. I mean, even at the provincial level, even though there isn't necessarily, you know, an obvious explicit um, kind of, you know, populist choice like that. I mean, there is a, um, the, there, there was recently a few months ago, there was some talk about a new party that was going to be uh, um, forming, but I think there is definitely a little bit of an appetite for a party that's kind of like the people's party um, that would uh, shave off a little bit of support from 
um, you know, from the from the right or the populist flank of the progressive conservatives. Um, depending on what happens, I mean, I guess there is that there is that potential. But I mean, in terms of just kind of the short term and, and what's going to happen, I mean, um, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens with the court case. And certainly there are, you know, there are, some, you know, sort of the way that things kind of went down and, and the way that the, the the party was, you know, almost very defensive in terms of talking about um, the way that they ran the leadership race. I mean, they spent the, the one official from the party spent a lot of time at the convention on Saturday kind of running through, well, here's all the things that we did to make it, um, you know, make it seem fair and make it, you know, make it work and make sure everyone could cast their ballot, because certainly there, there has been a lot of criticism of that. Um, but I mean, in the but I mean, in the short term, like you point out, I mean, Heather Stephenson has been sworn in as premier. Um, Shelley Glover did make an appeal to the lieutenant governor, uh, who's um, Janice Fillman to say that uh, we uh, to say that, you know, she should, uh, you know, hold off on the swearing in. But I mean, at the end of the day, also, the fact that Heather Stephenson has so much support from the caucus means that, you know, she's going to have the confidence of the the, the, how, the the party in the House. I guess it does raise kind of the issue, you know, it's sort of the, there's been some debate and discussion about like this does raise the issue of like to what extent are political parties, which, you know, are essentially private organizations, like how, you know, should the rules apply in terms of their, um, you know, their internal, their internal um mechanics you know when when there when there is an issue like this especially when the stakes are so important uh and and people are choosing a premier um that's kind of you know the one thing where you know that's that's really kind of what we wonder about and i guess you know we'll see what happens with the court case but there really doesn't seem to be a lot of other recourse because certainly i mean the swearing in went ahead um power was turned over heather stephenson is going to be introducing a throne speech and and uh coming back into the legislature in manitoba in a couple weeks here so you know things go on but yeah yeah there is kind of this weird cloud kind of hanging over hanging over things in the background yeah courts have generally been pretty squeamish about intervening in terms of internal party dynamics just recently in ontario there was a former conservative mp who was trying to get a pc nomination yeah. and the pc party decided to appoint someone else and she tried to take it to a court and the judge said i'm not getting involved you have all these processes within the party itself um I, it's weird to think as we think about political parties as these public democratic organizations but in a way, they're private clubs, right? Where you pay for membership, and uh, you know, it's it's not really um, in in the realm of the of the law, I guess. But it, it is an interesting dynamic here. And as you say, because Stevenson has so much support within the caucus, it's not like there's going to be this movement within the no. uh, within the caucus to try to remove Stevenson and, and get Glover in. So, and we no. should point out we're recording this on Thursday morning. So, who knows? By the time you're listening to this, maybe there's been some developments. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe I'll be the premier by the time this comes out. Well, we, I think we all get a turn. I think that's how it works. That's yeah. how Manitoba is going to work now. We're all, we all get a day. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, you know, it could be an option. Okay, so. She is the leader of the party. She is now the premier. Um, what kind of PC party is going to be one that's led by Heather Stevenson? Is it going to be a lot like the one from Brian Pallister or is it a departure? Well, I think it's 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 hard to say. I mean, I, sort of just looking at it at first, I mean, I think it more in terms of um, tone and, and messaging and kind of just the, the face of the party. I mean, there's been a definite and deliberate um, uh, means of, you know, like trying to make it so that it is kind of a, a softer, gentler, kinder, uh, kinder uh, progressive conservative party. So, I mean, a lot, you know, like I think, every, you know, every second word out of um, Heather Stephenson's mouth is either listen or collaborate. And uh, and that's something that she says a lot. And that's it was a, definitely a criticism of Brian Pallister is that he didn't do a lot of that. He mostly talked at people. He didn't listen to people. And he, uh, uh, a lot 
lot of different stakeholder groups and organizations and that sort of thing in the province were, were not happy with this leadership. So, I mean, I think Heather Stephenson has talked a lot about uh, trying to, you know, listen a lot more and, and you know, certainly try to um, repair relations with um, uh, with Indigenous Manitobans in particular and, and do things in the spirit of reconciliation, uh, because ultimately that was the thing that kind of led to uh, led to the, the, the flashpoint in the summer with uh, uh, the Brian Palliser's resignation. So I think that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, Policy-wise, I guess it kind of remains to be seen. Um, Heather Stephenson did pull some, you know, or actually, I guess it was the, it was the care to the interim premier, Kelvin Gertzen, uh, during the two months that he was in office, uh, pulled some, some contentious bills that were uh, before the legislature. The, the, the one that was kind of the biggest flashpoint was uh, one that would have been a fairly major overhaul of the public school system in Manitoba. Um, and a lot of the, you know, the teachers union in Manitoba and a lot of other groups have been, have been quite vocal in fighting it over the last few months. And so that that's been pulled, I guess, you know, the, the question is, um, there, some of that may come back in some form, and there were a few other things that were kind of that were before the before the legislature that uh, you know were around uh, rules for you know protesting on public property, um, a few different things like that that were uh, you know that were pulled that we you know we we may see some of that come back, but I think you know really um, you know in many ways. Um, you know, the, the progressive conservatives, I mean, do, you know, do have a mandate and, and you know, certainly, you know, there's certain things that they had, they had pledged to do. And I think, you know, there, I think you, you will see a lot of those things kind of continue, but they may just be watered down a little bit. They may not be quite as, quite as draconian. I mean, there was another one, I mean, uh, Brian Pallister had, had, you know, as part of promising to phase out education property tax in Manitoba, uh, he was going to go quite far with, uh, you know, with rebates for people. And then Heather Stevenson has announced that she's going to kind of do that a little bit more gradually over time so it's yeah it's, it's kind of just it's, it's similar stuff but it's just kind of maybe the yeah the the degree of it is maybe not going to be quite as quite as strong uh, as it was under brian pallister so you, you did mention the pcs do have a mandate they're going to be uh in office at least until 2023 that's when the next election is scheduled um how do you think this changes the the landscape you know you the the la latest polls that i've seen and, and that you've done uh suggest that you know wab canoe and the new democrats are in a pretty good spot but was that an anti-Pallister vote or, you know, does the NDP have a chance to to win the next election? Yeah, I mean, that that's the big question. And I, I think it's it's too early to answer that conclusively. Um, I mean, we've seen, yeah, we've seen in our polling, I mean, things got to the point there was a there was a huge gap. I mean, in our poll in June, uh, the NDP was sitting at 47 percent. The Conservatives were at 29. Uh, the poll we did in September, just after, you know, Brian Pallister resigned but before Heather Stephenson won the leadership, um, that gap had narrowed to seven points. The biggest thing is that there is still a very significant gap in Winnipeg. The NDP does have a very strong lead. I think basically what it, you know, sort of that initial bounce back, I think is a lot of um, people who voted Tory in the past and who maybe were thinking about the NDP or were undecided or kicking tires. It sort of seemed like those are the folks who uh, have kind of come back to the PC since Brian Pallister has left, but there still is a significant um, ways to go. Uh, and that's kind of really, I think that's what's going to be the focus of Heather Stephenson, you know, Premier Stephenson over the next, um, you know, 18 months, two years will be uh, trying to, you know, make it, you know, make it uh, in, in Winnipeg, especially in suburban Winnipeg and with, um, uh, you know, women uh, who, who really, you know, at the end of the day are, you know, the ones who primarily decide elections in Manitoba. Right now, um, that support is very much with the NDP and the NDP does have a good chance of winning the next election, just kind of based on what we've seen. But, um, I think the Conservatives are definitely going to try to, you know, put every bit of their um, effort into trying to win, uh, win those folks back, uh, win, win those demographic groups back, win those areas back, um, because that's the difference between winning and losing in Manitoba. 
That's an interesting thing I've never heard of. So is it your view that in Manitoba, uh, women voters tend to be the swing voters that decide uh, who gets to form the government? Yeah, uh, that's what we, we've seen that in like 20 years of polling that um, when, you know, the, yeah, when the NDP, you know, there, there has been definite shifts back and forth and it's not, it's not, oh, I mean, women is a huge group. I mean, <laughs> particularly, particularly, uh, you know, particularly women who live in suburban Winnipeg uh, tend to be the ones who, uh, you know, who, who swing that. I mean, the, you know, to a certain degree, like, you know, the, when the conservatives have been at their most popular, I mean, there, there is a really huge gap among male voters. I mean, you know, there's much more support for the PCs, but, um, but it is, it has typically been, yeah, when, when the NDP were really popular, they had a massive advantage with women and especially suburban women. Uh, and over time, you know, certainly in the first few years of the, you know, the right before the Palliser government was elected and in the first few years of it, um, the PCs, you know, did have a lot more support among, among women. So that tends to be kind of, yeah, like, um, how it how it seems to move uh in terms of support and uh and and so really i think it's yeah that that's the uh that's where the focus is uh is is probably going to be in terms of the, the conservatives being able to win back uh win back that support plus you know i think step one was yeah getting kind of their you know more of their base which i think it was starting to peel off you know at the tail end of pallister's time in office and then step two is kind of yeah getting the getting the suburban woman back in the fold well, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch to see, you know, the first polling that comes out once, um, you know, after now that Stephenson is in as premier, whether the PCs get a bump out of it or not. In your experience, does, you know, does a change of leadership at the top, do you, do you often see a big shift in the, in the polls in Manitoba? Because I know in Manitoba, things tend to be relatively stable in terms of support. And it's just a couple points here or there that tend to make the difference in elections. Well, it's, it's, it's funny, Manitoba tends to be very stable, and then all of a sudden it's not, and then there will be a massive, uh, massive shift, um, and it just happens very suddenly. Um, yeah, I mean, the last time that there was a, I mean, the last time that there was a leadership change, there, there wasn't really a significant difference. I mean, it was, that was when Gary Dewar, who had been quite popular pretty much through his entire tenure as the NDP premier, uh, handed things off to Greg Salinger in 2009. And if I, if I think back, I don't think that, you know, there, there wasn't really any kind of a big shift because I don't think there was the, the NDP was not unpopular at that point. I mean, Dewar was fairly well-liked by the public and Salinger, you know, didn't have quite, you know, didn't have quite the, you know, personal brand and popularity, but he was still seen, you know, fairly well-liked and seen as, you know, fairly well-regarded by the public. So there wasn't really, uh, wasn't really a big difference. This is, I mean, this is the first time that, you know, I think, yeah, I think that probably, you know, ever in this province that we've had a situation where the party in power has been so unpopular and then you get a, and then you get to turn things over to someone else. I mean, we've seen that in a lot of other provinces and sometimes, you know, quite often there has been a bump. I mean, if you think of, um, you know, Dalton McGinty to Kathleen Wynne in Ontario or um, Ed Stalmack to Allison Redford or, you know, like, uh, or um, Campbell to Christy Clark in BC. I mean, there, there have been situations where, yeah, the party does this, goes to a new premier, uh, and uh, and and there ends up being a bit of a bump, and, and they quite often, you know, have have an opportunity uh, to win the next election. But I mean, that's a two year, you know, two years, so much can happen. You don't know. Yeah, two years until the next election, but uh, still plenty to watch in Manitoba politics. Even in the next few days, who knows? Maybe uh, maybe you will turn out to be the premier. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> so fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Curtis. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This past Wednesday, I launched the weekly RIT newsletter on my website, therit.ca. Every week, the newsletter will have all the latest in election news and break down the newest federal and provincial polls. I'll also have some political history in there, as well as upcoming political milestones. 
I hope you can check it out. The first newsletter of the month will be free for everyone to read, and the rest will be uh, just for subscribers. But because the weekly writ is doing some of the same stuff that I've been doing on the podcast, I might not always have a poll of the week or a segment of the Every Election Project in the podcast, especially when I have guests on, which makes the podcast already long enough. So we'll be skipping those segments this week, but I do have some listener questions, so let's get to those. These came on Twitter. I got one from Connor. What's the likelihood we actually see the new riding boundaries, etc., before the next federal election? What happens if we go to the polls right in the middle of the process? So the uh, redistribution of the uh, federal ridings across the country is going to be taking place over the next few years. Uh, the panels, the independent panels that will be making the new boundaries will start their uh, work soon. But the expectation is that uh, the whole thing might not be completed until 2023 or 2024. Um, so the odds that we have those new boundaries in time for the next election really depends on whether this parliament will last long enough. Uh, if the parliament does last into 2024, in the fall of 2024, then I think that we should almost certainly have the new boundaries in place. If we have an election that takes place when it's next scheduled to be held in 2025, then certainly the boundaries will be different. Uh, but if it's before then, if it's before 2024, uh, it's probably going to be the same map that we have currently. And if we go to the polls right in the middle of the process, it doesn't matter. The process is not stopped or it doesn't have an impact on the um, the election uh, boundaries when the election is called. Whenever that is, whatever boundaries are already in place, those will be the boundaries that we'll be using. So until we get the actual new boundaries voted into law and, and recognized and all that kind of stuff, um, we'll have a 338-seat map. Marcy Mikendo, she asked, uh, can you explain how different Canada's elections are from the U.S.? She was uh, reflecting a bit on what had just happened in the U.S. They had some, uh, some elections just this past Tuesday. The one that you might have heard of was the Republicans winning the governor's race for Virginia. One that actually has probably more impact on Canada was there was a referendum vote in Maine. Hydro-Quebec is working on a project to provide hydroelectricity to New England. And to do so, they have to have some of their power lines go through Maine. And the voters in Maine voted against that project. So we'll see what's going to happen there. It's a whole going to be in the courts now, I suppose, a big legal battle. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, there are a lot of differences between Canadian and U.S. elections. And, you know, we can, we can highlight a number of them. Uh, like, first of all, the United States is far more polarized than Canada. There's two parties in the United States, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans. And the country is almost evenly split between the two. And people generally don't switch that much between them. And people really don't like very much the other party. There's been polls I've seen where Democrats or Republicans, uh, you know, say they would be uncomfortable if their daughter or son married someone from the uh, other party. Um, we don't really have that here in Canada. People are not as wedded to their political parties. A lot of people don't identify with parties. And if they do, they're willing to switch from one election to the next. You can just think about how, you know, in 2011, the Liberals had 19% of the vote. In 2015, they took nearly 40%. Uh, you have what happened in Quebec with the NDP going from fringe party to uh, really a huge force in Quebec and back to um, less relevance. So that is one of the major things. We don't have that sort of partisanship and we don't have that sort of polarization. I don't think there's as much separating liberals and conservatives in Canada, for example, as there can be between Democrats and Republicans. In terms of the system... One of the things that I think is probably the most important difference, and the one that has the most impact overall, is the lack of money in Canadian politics. Outside of a few provinces where there aren't limits, like in Saskatchewan, 
Like in Canada, you can only donate $1,650 to a political party. Now, that might be a lot of money to an individual person. For a party, that's not a huge amount. Uh, you know, as I just mentioned, the Conservatives raised $9 million during the campaign. They've raised over $23 million this year. So a donation of 1600 bucks is not really going to make or break the bank. In the United States, though, money is just such a huge factor. The um, Elections in the United States are extremely expensive, and they're also really frequent. You know, we think about presidential elections as being, you know, every four years, which they are. But in the United States, the vote to fill Congress takes place every two years. If you win uh, a seat in the House of Representatives, it's only for a two-year term. So it's not long before you're already starting to ramp up for the next election, having to raise more money. Um, you know, the Senate elections, a third of the Senate is voted in every six years, but it means that every two years, some of the Senate is up for grabs. And then there's, of course, the the presidential election. So there's a huge dependence on money in the United States, which I think changes their politics in a way that it doesn't have an impact here in Canada. Money is still important here, but it's not about getting big donors and links with with companies and corporations that could donate to your super PAC and all that kind of stuff. Um, in Quebec, the donation limit is $100. $100. If you want to donate 100 bucks to a political party in Quebec, they'll take your money, but they don't need it. They get most of their money from uh, public subsidies. So I think this really has a big impact. And one of the other things that is very different between Canadian and American politics is the primary system. You know, in Canada, to win a nomination in a riding, uh, you know, you do need to convince members to get on your side or you need to convince the party to appoint you. Um, to win the leadership of a party, you need to win the membership. But in the United States, the polarization in the in the country and the way that the boundaries are all, all, are all drawn means that a lot of these districts are either very Republican or very Democratic. So there is a natural sort of inclination towards trying to convince the most engaged people and that can push the politics to the extremes. We don't really have that in Canada because the membership of a party is not really as as homogenous, maybe, as it is in the United States. And the primary system in terms of choosing a leader is still kept largely within the control of a party. You know, they still have a lot of rules. They can still deny a candidacy of a, of a person. You know, would Donald Trump have been allowed to run for the Conservative Party in Canada, for example. I mean, there might have been a lot of good reasons for the party to not allow him to run. We don't really have that same kind of thing here in Canada. So I think that makes a big difference that we still do reward broad-based parties that are trying to broaden the tent, get as many different kind of people uh, supporting the party. There's less of a emphasis on just engaging the most extreme parts of, of the political spectrum. You could argue that with the way that Canadian politics is going, maybe we're heading in that direction. But I think that we still do have a lot of safeguards that prevent it from happening. One of them is the redistribution process for ridings. It's an independent panel. They don't set the boundaries based on which party is going to win them. In the United States, a lot of the districts are designed by partisan panels. So if you're a democratically controlled legislature, you're going to try to make sure that the boundaries that are redrawn are good for the Democratic Party. And the same thing goes to the Republicans. Um, and so that also has that effect of making some ridings extremely safe for political party, which means that the real race is for the nomination. We only have that in a few ridings in Canada. It's In the United States, there's a huge amount of uh, districts that the real battle is for the nomination, not for the election itself. And, you know, we do have differences in terms of the media. 
uh, in terms of the polarization there. Uh, we have differences in terms of just the electoral system, you know, for Senate, uh, for the presidential election, it's an electoral college. It encourages a two-party race rather than a multi-party system like we have. There's a huge amount of differences. If you're trying to find similarities between Canada and other countries, I don't think the United States is the best to look at. I think our politics, the system is so different, but I think our politics are very different too. I think you can find more common threads in, for example, the United Kingdom which does actually use the same system as we do. From Ryan, I got, what's Brian Jean's path to the premier's office? Now, I wanted to touch on this one because we have a little bit of a news uh, coming this week is that Brian Jean, he is running for the United Conservative Party nomination in the riding of Fort McMurray, Lac La uh, which is in northern Alberta. It was vacated because the former MLA there ran for the Conservative Party in the federal election and won a seat, so there's a vacancy. Brian Jean, if you've heard of him before, he used to be a Conservative MP, he left federal politics and then ran for the leadership of the Wild Rose Party just ahead of the 2015 election, formed the official opposition there, was a leader of the Wild Rose Party, and then worked with Jason Kenney to merge the two parties, uh, the Progressive Conservatives and the Wild Rose, in the United Conservative Party. He ran for the UCP leadership and lost to Jason Kenney in a pretty contentious race. So he used to be the MLA for that area. And he's now running for the UCP nomination for the upcoming by-election. He has called for Kenny's resignation. He's been flirting with other parties, sometimes with uh, a bit more of a Western, let's just say, uh, regionalist kind of view. The path to the premier's office for him is, one, he's allowed to run for the UCP nomination in Fort McMurray, Lac La Biche. He wins it. He wins the by-election. And Jason Kenny doesn't hold on to the premiership. And Brian Jean either runs and wins the leadership or is given the leadership. I suppose that's unlikely to happen. But that does seem to be the path to the premier's office for Brian Jean is to replace Jason Kenney as UCP leader. Because Jason Kenney might have a lot of trouble holding on to that leadership. And Brian Jean would be one of the front runners to win it. Uh, he still would have a lot of support from the Wild Rose wing of the party. And um, you know what? That's probably his best shot at getting the premier's office. I'm not sure how he would do against the NDP uh, and Rachel Notley in the current context. Uh, the way things are going in Alberta, you know, you kind of expect the New Democrats to win the next election. Uh, but Brian Cheen's path to the premier office probably means that Jason Kenney uh, is on his way out. All right, and Fraser Fathers on Twitter asked, given the recent minimum wage announcement in Ontario... Is there any data around union support being linked to voting outcomes? Do their endorsements matter with members voting how leadership asks, or do members vote more independently? Uh, this was another bit of news from this past week where Doug Ford and the Ontario PCs at the Premier uh, announced a minimum wage hike, including of uh, servers, which you know have a lower minimum wage because of uh, they get tips. The PCs in Ontario have really been trying to win over the Labour vote, uh, that blue-collar uh, working-class vote, that we've seen the Conservatives in the United Kingdom have had a lot of success winning over. And the federal Conservatives have tried to do it. They tried to do it under Aaron O'Toole. They didn't seem to have much success. Uh, but the PCs see there's an opportunity here because if they look at the next election as being between them and the New Democrats, winning seats like uh, Oshawa or Essex, then they need to get that unionized vote, that labor vote, uh, that working class vote. So I think that as time has been going on, I think that the influence that unions have over their members has uh, really shifted because you don't really think of the NDP as much of a Labour Party as you might have thought of it in the past, particularly if you think about the federal New Democrats. Um, they, they seem much more of a progressive party uh, in terms of 
uh, you know, progressive politics and, and social politics and, and poverty and um, uh, diversity and things like that. Not so much that, you know, they are the party of labor, which is where it has much more of a, more of its of its origin. I asked David Coletto at Abacus Data for some uh, union vote numbers for the last federal election, and their post-election survey found that the uh, Liberals won the union vote with 37% against 32% for the Conservatives, but just 16% for the NDP, whereas non-union members... The Conservatives did win it, 35 to 32 for the Liberals and 18 for the NDP. But you can see that the NDP actually did better among non-union members than union members. So I think that for union leaders and for unions when they give endorsements, certainly a chunk of their uh, membership will pay a lot of attention because, you know, they they still might identify with the job and, and whether the parties that are what's in their platform is going to appeal to them and make it easier or harder to do their jobs. But I think there are a lot of uh, unionized workers and working class uh, voters who are more conservative. Um, You know, these are voters that are reading the Toronto Sun. You know, they're not reading the Daily Worker. Um, If you look at what happened in in Ontario in the 2018 election, there's a poll by ECOS. Now, ECOS was pretty close at the end of that campaign to where things actually stood. And in their final poll of the campaign, which, um, you know, the PCs won the vote by about seven points. ECOS was giving the NDP 41% support among working class, that's how they termed them, and the PCs were only five points behind there at 36%. So they do still have a lot of support among, you know, quote-unquote working class voters. So for Doug Ford, who I think identifies as coming from that world, trying to go after the labor vote, I think that they have a good shot at it. I'm not sure if they can win it, but, you know, if they can get 35% of the vote from uh, you know working class people, from uh, unionized people, that'll go a long way to helping them be uh, reelected. So, whether or not the unions supporting or opposing them will have a big impact probably depends a lot on the union in terms of what their membership looks like. But it's certainly going to be one of the interesting storylines to follow in the Ontario election campaign, which, as I mentioned, is only 209 days away. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. Thanks again to Sabrina and Angie of Queen's Park Observer and Curtis Brown of Probe Research for uh, giving us their time. So uh, remember to check out the weekly writ on the writ.ca. And if you do live in Quebec, be sure to go out and vote in your municipal elections on Sunday. I'll break down the results next week. Until then, thanks for listening.